0: We've been on the series of world religions, and uh, we just covered Catholicism, and then Rick uh, covered Judaism and uh, finished that up last week. And the other one that I really wanted to cover because there's always a lot of questions about it is the charismatic movement. Now, I put in parenthesis Pentecostalism, but this is a very, very broad topic because there are churches that range very, very broadly on this issue. There are some very conservative churches, like I mean, I remember even talking to my wife who grew up in the Assemblies of God Church, um, who uh, was it was a Pentecostal church. But there is a difference between Pentecostal and charismatic, um, and so there's going to be some things that we're going to talk about just to show you the difference between those two things. But this is a broad-ranging topic. There are some things that when I speak about them, um, it it may not apply to certain charismatic churches, and so I want you guys just to be aware of that. This is not a broad you know brush where you can just paint every church that participates in these sorts of things as a charismatic church or an all-out charismatic church because there's some that are crazy charismatic and there are some that are a lot more conservative charismatic okay and there's some that are a lot more open about practicing some of these things and they'll do it in the middle of a sunday morning service with everyone that's there and there's others that they won't do that but they'll do it at home when no one else is around So this ranges. This is a very, very broad thing. So we're going to talk about it, and a lot of things that we're going to speak from are more from the charismatic movement, Uh, but there are some people that are more conservative in their doctrine that still believe in similar uh, doctrines such as this. And and what I mean by that is when it comes to tongues and healing and modern-day prophets and things like that as well. So we're going to go through some of that. And by the way, as we go through this... If you guys have any questions along the way, please, 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 please interrupt me and let's ask those questions and get them out there because this is not a topic that we'll be able to cover um, unless, I I really don't want to cover it unless you guys are 100% on the same page. I want you guys to really understand this. Yes? Well, that's a shame. That's a shame. Yeah, there's two pieces of paper. There's a front and back, and then there was a second page. It wasn't stapled together. So we'll see how far we get, and then we can help you guys out with page two if you need it, okay? All right. Got it? This might end up being a two-weeker because of the topics that we're going to be talking about. All right? Okay. Okay, so with that, let's go ahead and start working through page number one and two that most of you guys should have. All right, so uh, so the charismatic movement. So we look back over history, and we're going to talk about the founders of the charismatic movement. This guy, Charles Parham, is going to be the main person going back to the doctrines that are found within the charismatic movement. And here's a little bit of history, but Charles Parham is one and William J. Seymour is another. And, um, and so we're going to go through this and make sure that we get our history uh, on this one right before we get into anything else, okay? All right, so first of all, Charles F. Parham. He lived until 1929. All right, so he was an American Pentecostal pioneer and author. He formulated classical Pentecostal theology in Topeka, Kansas in 1901, and thus deserves recognition as the founder of the Pentecostal movement. He converted to Christianity at the age of 13. He believed that God had called him into the ministry. He entered college at the age of 17, and shortly thereafter, he recovered from a severe attack of rheumatic fever. And he had an experience that drove his theology that's important. This left him with the firm belief in the doctrine of divine healing. Now, this is important. I wanted to put that blank there first because uh, when it comes to the Bible, um, we do believe that God can heal at any point in time. He can do whatever he wants. I've known stories of people that have been in hospitals where they have cancer and you have certain tests and certain x-rays and certain MRIs where it shows up. And then all of a sudden, within a week, they do it again and it's gone. That totally get. And I believe in all that. What I'm talking about when it comes to divine healing is someone having the ability and the power to lay their hands on someone and pray for them and they, and they get healed. Like God gives someone the, the gift of healing. And we'll get into more of that on why I don't believe that what is operating today is biblical. All right. So that's where a lot of the doctrine of divine healing really came from is when he recovered from that severe attack of that fever. He left college three years later to assume the pastor of a Methodist church. It was through this contact that he ultimately became enamored with the theology of the holiness movement. The holiness movement. Now, how many of you guys know what the holiness movement is? Anybody? Anybody at all? Go for well, it. I'll
1: take a guess. Yeah. It's a movement of holiness.
0: It is. It is a movement of holiness. But more specifically, I mean, you're on the right track. You got it started. Got the, the car out of the gate. So the holiness movement, it is the theology, and it's explained later, but it's the theology that you can live a completely holy and sinless life here and now on the earth. So there's a theology that you can walk so close with God that you will no longer sin anymore before you die. So that's the holiness movement, okay? And we'll explain more about that a little bit later. Now, especially when we get into... in I don't know how long it'll take for us to get there, but when we get to the different variations of Christianity and how things split, you will be able to see like when the Holiness Movement came in, why that was important, Uh, and there's certain people that didn't believe in it that ended up starting different denominations, and so we'll get into that. But that's overall basic understanding is the theology that that you believe that you can walk so close with God that you can get to the point in your life here now on the earth where you will no longer sin ever again. All right, so he left the Methodist Church in in 1895 to assume an independent ministry. He later married and began the Bethel Bible School. It was at this school that he developed the theology concerning speaking in tongues as the evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit. So he was the one that was the first one to document that and put that down as a theological system. But it's important for you to understand this part in the, in the parenthesis here. He originally believed them, the speaking in tongues, to be known foreign languages that thousands of missionaries would speak in order to evangelize the world before the second coming of Christ. So it's openly documented that he believed at one point in time that that was the gift of speaking in tongues. But it was while he was at the school that he began to develop the different kind of speaking in tongues that we know today. Now, how many of you have ever been to a church where you've been a part of a service or you've seen that where you've, you've experienced someone speaking in tongues like it's more like a gibberish, like an unintelligible language? Okay, so we got a few. Okay. All right. So that is what he developed at this point in time. Prior to that moment, he believed that it was the ability for someone to speak a known language that didn't, they didn't previously know that. So it would be like someone going out on the plains of Africa and they didn't know how to speak Swahili. And God would give them the supernatural ability to speak Swahili since they've never learned it before in order for those people to hear the gospel. That's what he believed prior to this moment. And then he developed this theology then too. Okay? All right. So then that's that person. Now the second person that's kind of tied in with Charles Parham is this Agnes N. Osman. Now this was the first person to speak in unknown tongues at Parham's Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas. Her experience is credited with validating Parham's assertion that tongue, speech, evidence, spirit, baptism. She later became an evangelist. While the immediate impact of Parham's theology was limited, it gained more momentum several years later in a revival meeting held outside of Houston, Texas, From there, William J. Seymour, a black holiness preacher, so he was part of the holiness movement, convinced of the truth of Parham's teachings, traveled to Los Angeles, California, to preach the new message. The ensuing revival at the Azusa Street Mission from 1906 to 1909 represented an anomaly on the American religious scene. No one had ever seen that before. In 1906, Parham's prominence in the new movement, not yet known as Pentecostal, so it wasn't labeled as Pentecostal yet, was coming to an end due to rumors of him being a homosexual. In the summer of 1907, he was arrested on the charge of sodomy. All charges were later dropped, but the damage to his reputation was was already done. Because the holiness movement taught a person could come to a point of sinless perfection, and Parham was a leader, his work was over. So he was completely discredited. So that's kind of the history behind this guy. Yeah. Sodomy. Sodomy. That would be like homosexuality. Okay. Yeah. So the term sodomites... Well, that's where that comes from. It comes from Sodom, Gomorrah, because that's the first place in the Bible where it's documented, where you have a culture of homosexuality. Yeah?
2: How do you get arrested
0: for that? Well, it, it's actually against the law. Like, if you were to go to the laws of our United States, I mean, in a lot of cities and places, sodomy is still a law that's in place today. Oh. So the act of homosexuality is actually against the law in most places. I don't know if you knew that, but Wait, that's... Is this,
1: like, public or, like, private? Because, like, if you're in the public, like, kissing a guy I see mm-hmm. how that's wrong mm-hmm. and yeah private too but what's
0: the law states I don't know I'd have to go to you have to go to each law but I know that as, as a general rule back in the early 1900s it was against the law period so if it could be proven in the court of law then you could be arrested on that charge interesting yeah case. it is it is there's a lot of weird laws that, within our our cities that many people don't even realize okay so that's a little bit about Charles Parham his time with Agnes uh, William J. Seymour and the Azusa Street Mission okay All right, so let's talk a little bit more about William J. Seymour. So William J. Seymour, he was a black holiness preacher that founded the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles, California. It was there that the gift of spirit baptism emerged and spread abroad in a religious wildfire. The signed gifts of the Holy Spirit, understood by other denominations throughout throughout history as having ceased in the first century, had now been miraculously restored. Now, uh, that that statement can be a little bit controversial for people that believe um, in speaking in tongues because people uh, will go back and say this has always been a part of the church, that this is something that people have always done. Um, But when you look at it from a historical perspective, there is some accounts where a a speaking in tongues type thing that you see today of the speaking in an unintelligible language existed uh, back even during the the dark ages within the Catholic Church. There's some documented things of that. But primarily this act, this whole thing that that they would do was found in pagan religions. So when you go back and you go back and you study the whole unintelligible language and being in religious circles, it was mainly pagan teachings. Uh, back with, like, you know, people that participate in voodoo do something very similar. And I'm not saying it's all connected, but it is very similar when you look at them from that perspective. So, but it was this guy, Parham, with Seymour that really brought it to the surface and really introduced it within Christianity and it started to really gain some momentum. All right? So, before that, And overwhelmingly, the other denominations throughout history did not believe uh, that 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 gift existed and it existed in this fashion. And now it had been miraculously restored. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Evangelistic tent meetings were used across by the U.S., by Pentecostals to spread the word. And so William J. Seymour is a big uh, figurehead when it comes to the charismatic movement, along with Charles Parham. All right? So that's just a little bit of background. Like I said, this is a snippet of some of this information, enough to just get you going to study some of this stuff yourself. So, boiling it all down, here's the summary. Although Pentecostals and Charismatics claim that believers throughout the century spoke in tongues, they originally claimed these were known foreign languages used by missionaries to preach the gospel to foreigners. That was big, and that's what people believed early, early 1900s and even before that. It wasn't until this time that things began to change. After decades of speaking in unknown tongues within that context, Pentecostal theology was restructured and retrofitted to work with the obvious experiences of their followers. Now they claim believers throughout history spoke in unknown tongues when before that wasn't true from people that believed in those sorts of things, but then they changed that story. And it's important to realize that most all Pentecostals and Charismatics do not know facts about church history or facts containing their own history. They really don't. And, and believe me, they're not the only ones, because I was super ignorant of church history myself until I went into it. And I remember back when I first started studying church history, I would just go with whatever my teachers... Like, I remember going through some of the church history details when I was going through Moody Bible <laughs> Institute, and I hadn't done any studying myself. And what I found was, is that I learned things from them... And then I studied church history on my own later and going through historical facts. And what I found was that all the stuff that's being taught within mainstream Christianity when it comes to church history has a huge, huge Catholic bent to it. The Catholic Church has taken church history and and painted it and has done so many things where they start saying what this guy did was good when it really wasn't when you take a look at it from a biblical perspective. So this whole thing of changing history is nothing new. I mean, even within your guys' history books, your guys' history books in school have changed dramatically in the last 20 years. And then prior to that, it changed dramatically 20 years prior to that. There's so many things that are not spoken about now in, in the history books. It's crazy. It's crazy because our educational system is trying to hide stuff from you. And Karl Marx was the guy who came up with the whole thought that if you can separate a person from their history, then you can get them to believe anything. He was a huge proponent of that and that's happening like crazy. So here's the point. You guys need to do your own homework. I mean, let me show you one verse that has just been when it comes to this topic and all the other topics that we cover, go to Acts 17. Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 10 and 11. Let me get a reader. Go ahead. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by
2: night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether
0: those things were so. Okay. Okay. This is the point here. And the reason why I give you guys these study sheets, and I'm giving you this kind of history here with the summary with Charles Parham, Agnes Osmond, William J. Seymour, Azusa Street Mission, and I'm giving you just this basic stuff because there's so much that I could put in here. I'm giving you guys this information because I want you to do this. Like if you really want to understand this stuff, you have to do what these Bereans did. You have to. You have to make sure that you get into the scriptures and you know that what you actually believe is true. If you're not willing to do that, then how do you know for sure, 100%, for sure that what you believe is actually true? How can you know? Because some other person taught it to you? Because your church taught it to you? I wish it was that easy. I really wish it was. Because I've been in circumstances where I've been in churches, and I've heard pastors preach, and the things that they've said have been way off when you compare it to what the scriptures say. And if you're not willing to put the time into seeing, is what I believe what the Bible says? Does the Bible say these things that I believe myself? Then how do you know that what you believe is truly from God? And that goes for anything else that we teach here. I don't want you guys to believe these things just because I say so. The reason why we're going to look at the scriptures is because I want to show you from what the Bible says why I believe what I believe. But even then, take these things yourself, go home, search it out, and see if... What you believe is actually true. You've got to be able to do that. And it's hard work, but you've got to be able to do it. Otherwise, you could be off on a tangent following someone who doesn't even love God, but they say they love God, and then you're living your entire life doing something that God never wanted you to do. This happens to people all the time, all the time. Believe me, all the time. So, and when it comes to that here at this church, I'm telling you, even as one of your pastors, I don't take everything that Tom says as Bible. I don't. I don't take everything Jay says as Bible. Whatever they preach and whatever they teach, I'm searching the scriptures to make sure that what they're teaching is actually true. And if something's off, I'm going to go talk to him about it. I'm going to do that. And I would expect the same from you guys. If I ever teach anything in here or outside of here and you search the scriptures and you find that I might be incorrect about it, I want you to talk to me about it. I really do. I mean that with all my heart because I want to make sure that I'm teaching 100% what the Bible says. Okay. You've got to be able to do it. If you're not willing to do the work, then it's your own fault when you fall off the rails. <laughs> That's as straight as I can put it. All right? Okay. So let's take a look at the authorities. So when it comes to the charismatic movement, let's take a look at their authorities. This is big. This is big. There are only two religions in the world, people that believe the Bible and then everybody else. And every other false religious system, and, and, and I'm not saying that charismatics don't believe in the gospel. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I believe they believe in false doctrine. Now, any religion that contains false doctrine, they will always have more than one authority. Always. It will always be the Bible plus something else. The Bible is never enough. It's never enough. Ever. And I hope that you see that pattern as we go through. Roman Catholicism, they had the Bible, and what else did they have? The Pope. What else did they have? Baptism. Baptism, Sacraments. What else did they have? Traditions. What else did they have? The councils, the works. Yeah, the liturgical stuff. And all that stuff. Yeah, so all that stuff. So it's the Bible plus everything else. The Jews, what do they have? They have the Bible and the oral law that they put together. There was man-made traditions. I mean, Rick just went through that last week. All that mm-hmm. stuff. It's the Bible plus. And so with charismatics, it's not anything different. They have the Bible, and now translations vary. Although most use modern versions. Most charismatic churches use modern versions. The only charismatic churches that you'll find today that will still be using the King James are ones that have pastors that are like 70 and 80 years old. That's all that you'll find. Everybody else, they've all switched over to using the Message Bible, the TNIV. Um, I mean, uh, what else is there? I mean, there's hundreds of other ones. The ESV is a big one. Yep, there's tons. LMNOP. LMNOP. There's a lot of them. All right. So you've got the Bible. So they they will go to the Bible as one of their authorities. They will do that. Um, And they only usually use portions of the Bible that they know really, really well pertaining to their doctrines. And we'll talk about that. Uh, Number two, they use the personal ecstatic experiences of each believer. Now, this one's very, very important. So, and I hope you guys really get this. And I want you to think about this. Without realizing it, those that believe in charismatic doctrines have elevated their experience over the clear teaching of God's words thus making their experience equal to or greater than the Bible. Once a person has an experience, it is almost impossible to convince them that what they are doing is unbiblical. This is a big deal. This is a big, big deal. And it's very, very subtle. Here's why. You can never deny someone's experience, ever. Ever. Because what they experienced is what they experienced. Were you there? No? Maybe you were. I don't know. But what you've experienced is what you can experience. I remember in the first conversations that Megan and I had had that, you know, her going to Assemblies of God Church, I found myself starting to become um, very attracted to her. And so I knew I had to guard my heart in that matter because I had not done a good job of that in my past. And so even though she didn't like me quite like that yet, I knew that in my heart that I was starting to like her. And so then I said, okay, we need to talk. And so then we sat down at Panera for about two hours at a time, one to two times a week, sometimes three, depending on what was going on. And we would sit down and we would have a Bible study. And what I did was I went through the entire Assemblies of God doctrinal statement. I mean, the whole thing. I printed it out and I went through the whole thing. Yeah.
2: I was searching. Yeah. This wasn't him testing me. I was testing him.
0: Yeah. And I went through the whole thing. And I started to point out things that I don't agree with and things that I do agree with. And I said, these things are good. This is good. This is good. This one's not good. And I wanted to sit down and open up the Bible and show her why I believe that it's not biblical. And we spent, I mean, how many weeks did we do that? Months. A couple months? We did
3: months.
0: Yeah. And we started doing that. And then what she would do is she would be taking notes and some other things. She would go home and she would study it out herself. And then she would come back the next week. And I remember one time she's like, that's exactly what the Bible says. And I'm like, shut up. She actually believes what the Bible says. And because growing up, I had, been, I had friends that were Catholic. I had friends that were in more liberal Christian churches that believed in like having women pastors. And I would try to have conversations with them. I had friends that, not as many that were charismatic, but I knew a few of them that were, that were in more charismatic churches. And every time I would try to talk to them about what the Bible says, every time, every time, they just shut me down. They did not want to hear anything that I had to say. And so this was one of the first times in my life where I opened up the Bible. She was searching, and the reason why she was willing to take a look at what the Bible says is because she was searching. I mean, I she wanted she to know to the truth. God. Yeah, because yeah. she you just gotten saved within a year from. Like
2: legit saved. I yeah. mean, I grew up getting saved every single day of my life. Yeah. I, thought I was gonna lose my salvation every single day. Yeah. But legit got saved, and then realized my church was not <laughs> telling the truth. Everything mm-hmm. was
0: coming together, and God was doing it, not me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that came with the new pastor that came in, who was different from you know, the pastor God, you had what growing up. To say, yep. And he
2: didn't, he didn't want to talk about
0: anything in the Bible. Which yep. I didn't understand that. Yep. But I remember in some of our conversations that, like, I thought in my own mind that when I had these conversations with my, my future wife, that um, that tongues was going to be the big issue. I really did, but it really wasn't. Because we went to the Bible, we went to Acts 2, and we, we looked at what biblical tongues actually was. What the issue was was healing. Because she had an experience where she was healed. I
2: grew up seeing
0: them yeah, and you grew up seeing them in your sister, sister. My grandpa,
2: mm-hmm. camped, mm-hmm.
0: camp, was mm-hmm. always yeah.
2: and then me personally, that summer, the summer I got saved.
0: Yeah. Because she was on top of on a, a Yep, yeah, you're on and, top of a roof, oh, and you I I fell.
2: started praying and then speaking in tongues and demanding healing or proclaiming it, really. Mm-hmm. And everybody was around me. And, um, yeah, I felt it and saw it
1: mm-hmm.
2: and all that.
0: And, yeah. and you talked about how the place where you had pain was starting to warm up, and then you felt it pop back into place. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, just from the laying on of hands. Yeah. So I'm in a position where, I mean, I grew up in a more conservative church, very much like our church. And I had never, (coughs) never have experienced things like this before. So when she shares with me that story, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to her and I'm like, I have no idea what to say. (laughs) But I just remembered you can never deny someone's experience, ever. My sister had a tumor
2: on the back of her leg when she was a kid and we took her up to the altar. I mean, it was huge. We were going to get it cut out. And um, we took her up to the altar and the deacons and the elders laid their hands on her and it disappeared. Mm-hmm. Like was shorter than the other, and she had special crutches mm-hmm. that, you know, and we, this is creepy stuff, this is going to creep you guys out, but I legit, we saw it, this is what, this is what it was, but we saw it extend mm-hmm. and level out, and she mm-hmm. did not use her crutches anymore after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, I can give you tons of stories. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I wanted her to share a little bit about that, because I'm, I want to be able to explain that. I don't know if we're going to have enough time. We're not going to have enough time. Probably to explain some of that, but I want to talk about it even next week. Yeah.
1: Uh, is this speaking of in tongues or healing, or is this like together? Combination of both. Combination
0: of both? Yeah, A yeah, yeah, combination of both. All right, so so with that, um, the reason why I wanted to bring that up is because they the, the, they end up elevating the experiences above what, what the Bible says. And so what I had to do with, with Megan was we were talking about it is I had to go back to, okay, can't deny the experience, but what does the Bible say? What does the bible say And we went back and i asked her questions i'm like what about this what about this what about this and then it was almost like wow okay there's a good chance that that may not have been from god and we talked about that in detail and it frankly freaked you out when we when we talked about that the possibility that that may not have been from god now um like i said i believe that god can heal at any point in time but as far as a person having the ability to heal and having that spiritual gift um that is not something that is in existence today And it's one of those things that uh, I I believe that it will come back during the tribulation because of other things that are going to unfold. And we can talk more about that. But um, that's in a nutshell. What else do you want to add? The point that
2: you made that changed it for me. Yeah. um, I mean, besides obviously me studying it out for myself, the point that you made that is it from God or is it not? In my whole life, yes, it was from God. But when you said, um, I remember when you said, if it was of God, then why are those people that have that gift in hospitals and all over the world laying their hands on people. Why why isn't everybody getting healed? Mm -hmm. Why? Why? And why is it believe these? And it it made me think, well, duh, that's common sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. And then just going through scripture and realizing that was a big, that was a changer for
0: me. Yeah. Yeah, because this is one of those things where it 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 can make me very, very upset because if a person legitimately has that gift, and why is it that it only can occur at certain places that mean like it's happening at a church or at a church surface? Why aren't they taking that gift into hospitals where there are children that are dying of diseases that cannot be cured? Why aren't they doing that? And why is it only taking place in these particular places at these particular times for these particular people? It's one of those things that when I go that direction, it can really get me upset.
1: Yeah. Uh, but speaking of tongues, back yep. in Acts 2, when they spoke and people heard their other languages, Yep. I heard a preacher in uh, Seattle, the Russian church, mm-hmm. uh, say, uh, well, the people that came over that were guests were, he w- was talking about the uh, previous time, they were Japanese, and they spoke Russian and Japanese, but mm-hmm. then when uh, the they started speaking in tongues they said it was pure japanese that they heard mm-hmm. uh, and that brought them closer i believe he said that's why they uh, repented uh yeah. so are you saying i don't know that's no i, I think thinking. that can
0: still happen because here's here's the thing so first of all the definition of what biblical tongues actually is that's the big one because when you look at it in acts, acts chapter two it is known languages So when you look at it and you study it, the way that it unfolded is that you have, and and we'll, we'll go into more of this. We're going to go into it next week in more detail because I want to go through it so everyone can actually see it. But oversimplified, explaining it from that angle, you had people that they all spoke Hebrew and they all came from Jerusalem, but they were all from different countries and different places where that's not the language of their land. So they come to Jerusalem, they all speak Hebrew because they're all proselytes or they're all Jews and they come into Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so everyone's speaking Hebrew. When um, the Holy Ghost comes and indwells the people in the upper room, they go out and they begin speaking and preaching the word of God and talking about Jesus Christ and talking about all those things. And the places that they went, they then had the supernatural ability that when they spoke, they were speaking in the native tongue of those people that were hearing. Now, the way that could have unfolded, it could have been that there was a group of Parthians, there's a group of Medes, and when someone was trying to witness to that group of Parthians or Medes, then when they spoke, they heard the language of the Parthians and Medes, even though that person did not understand that language. They didn't know how to speak that language. But that's just what they heard. Or they had a group of Parthians Medes and Elamites and a bunch of others, that they were all in one group. And then when, like they say, I'm one of the people in the upper room, when I spoke Hebrew... Everyone else heard it in the Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and they heard it in their language. Biblically speaking, that is the gift of tongues. Now, I believe that there are certain times and places that if God wants that to happen, I don't think it's, I mean, as far as what had occurred there, I think God can do whatever he wants. But there's a, what I'm talking about is that in charismatic churches today, where they don't practice that, where when they speak it is an unintelligible uh, language that does not exist among humanity, that that is not of God. I firmly believe that that is not of God because that is not what you see in the Bible at all. Because every time that you see it in the Bible, and there's only a few places, a handful of places in the entire Scriptures where tongues is actually used, it's always a known language. Every single time. Yeah?
2: Well, with that, in today's charismatic churches, most of them, if you have the gift of tongues, somebody has to have the gift of interpretation. So you have to have this person who then comes up and gives the interpretation to the congregation, congregation can't understand what you're saying right because it's they call it like their personal prayer language to God it's not really a known language so you also you have this whole conundrum kind of, of like there's you know if I'm speaking tongues to all of you guys and then you guys understand what I'm saying but then if Brenna's like I have the gift of interpretation and she stands up and she gives whatever message she wants to then you guys can finally understand it because Brenna had to bring it to you so mm-hmm. it's like this whole
1: Somebody else has to give you God's word through somebody else. Like, it's like a pattern of, like, you got it. But then Brenda can say, hey, uh, uh, he said, give me all your money and stuff. Right. And then yeah, they can be all Right, she right. That, I right. heard a uh, story about that in South Carolina. There was a lady that supposedly had that gift, and she's just yep. saying all this bad stuff about this family and stuff. And then yep. years come by, and then she's like, oh, yeah, I just didn't like that family.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's those things where... Here, here's, here's the bottom line of it, and, and this is where we're going to go. So let's finish this page, and then we'll get into more of what the Bible says. And I wanted to show you passages of Scripture next week that charismatics will use to support their doctrine and then what the Bible says to kind of come against what they're actually saying to put it in the proper context. Okay? Because well, I'm going to get to that point in a minute. I'm going to summarize that. Okay, so you have the personal experiences, and we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, Number three, another authority is the words of knowledge spoken by various believers to other believers. So while they do not admit that their words of knowledge or wisdom are equal with the scriptures, they would say that it serves a valuable purpose by revealing in one person what God is doing in another person. So this would be like if I had the word of knowledge or the gift of word of knowledge or, or of wisdom, it would be like me all of a sudden I have this feeling inside of me where I'm going to say, Kent, I believe that God wants me to tell you this. Boom. And then that would be something that would be supernatural. Okay? So that would be what it's like. And that happens a lot in charismatic churches. And sometimes, and I remember, you know, that's, that's happened with a guy that I remember. The prophecy? Yeah, kind of the prophecy, same thing. The gift of prophecy. And there's a, there's a prophet that came to your church this growing up. Came
2: quick. This prophet came to our church, and he told me a bunch of stuff. And I grew up with it, so I believed him wholeheartedly, and he, he flat out was a liar. Yeah. Like everything he said did not come true, it completely was, went the opposite way. And, um
1: that happened to a lot of people in the church yeah so yeah, yeah. yeah but then there's also stories I can bring the guy down from Columbus mm-hmm. uh when he was in his youth uh a prophet came to him and said hey do not enlist the island you're supposed to go on mm-hmm. in exactly one week it's gonna uh, mm-hmm. it's not going to be there anymore one week passed everybody on the island was dead yep yeah. yep yeah. so yeah and I see but this comes it. back down to I it. heard that from a first person he was yeah. talking about it. He was crying and everything. And I can yeah. him from Columbus. Yeah, no, I get it.
0: Now, Here's the thing, though, and this is where I'm going with this. We're going to get to this in a little bit. But once again, it's elevating the experience over what the Word of God says. Now, I do believe that God can intervene in people's lives because this has happened. I mean, it happened to me. I remember uh, it was like, what, three? Was it was three years ago. It was the first year Michaela came to camp, and she was really struggling about coming to our church. So I remember during one of our messages... That all of a sudden, I just, got laid it on my heart to say something. And I just said, if one of you are really just struggling about leaving your church and starting to come here, you should just do it. I never say that, ever. But that was a moment where... For whatever reason that was on my heart that was on my mind and then i said it and here michaela was in the audience and she was struggling about leaving the chapel and starting to come here and to be discipled and what her parents would say and she was really really struggling with it and she came up to me after and she's like did you know did you know and i'm like no i didn't have a clue she's like that's crazy and so you someone could say that that's almost like a word of knowledge type thing but here's the deal god had been working in her heart i didn't have a clue I'm preaching the word of God and I just said something and it just happened to be the same thing. So things like that can happen. And I believe that God is involved with all that. But there are a lot of people out there that they're driven by their emotions and they're stirred up inside them and they feel like they need to say something about someone and it's not actually true. Because there's evidences in the Old Testament where God says that if a prophet stands up and speaks in my name and that thing does not come to pass, he needs to die. That's so it says in the Old Testament law. And then it says in another place that if a prophet speaks something in my name and tells you that you should go away from God and to to just completely abandon God and his law and his ways and everything, and you go and do that, and whatever he says comes to pass, you still don't follow him because he told you to walk away from God. So now you're in a position where you're like, okay, so you can have a guy who has the gift of prophecy, and it could actually come to pass. But the result is, is that it's going to take me away from God that I shouldn't follow him. So the whole point is, is who do you trust? How do you know one way or the other? The only way you can know is what the Bible actually says at the end of the day. At the end of the day, whatever the Bible says, because there are certain things that can unfold where it might unfold like that, like even in that circumstance, it don't enlist and it could unfold. But how do you know that was actually from God? Because the enemy has spiritual signs and wonders and powers as well.
1: And the guy that told him never seen him before in his life. He yep. never knew anything about him. He, that was the first time uh, they were together. Yeah. That's...
0: Yeah. But how do we know for sure that was exactly from God, though? You know what I mean? It's one of those things when you break it all down, are we trusting in experiences, or are we trusting in what God actually says? Because the Bible is a black and white objective truth, source of truth, that you can't misinterpret anything, and it's not emotionally driven. It's in black and white, and that's one of the reasons why God put his book in print so we can actually read it, so we can trust every single word. Because we can even look at places... All right, we're going way off. Go to 2 Peter. I want you guys to see this. Go to 2 Peter. This is what I wanted. I told you guys to interrupt me. This is what I wanted. Okay, this is good. What's that? Second Peter. Yeah, not First Peter, not Third Peter, not Fourth Peter, Second Peter.
1: You
0: have a third and fourth. Just... <laughs> Burn your Bible if you have a third and fourth Peter. Okay. All right, Second Peter. I want you to look at this. This is really, really interesting. All right, verse 16, chapter one, verse 16. So Peter says this. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And now he's going to tell you what he was an eyewitness of when it came to his majesty. Verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So this is the Mount of Transfiguration. He's talking about we were eyewitnesses of the majesty of God. When he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, we saw Jesus Christ in his glorified state, and they heard the audible voice of God from heaven. Now, that would be pretty legit. That would be awesome. I would love to hear that. That would be amazing, absolutely amazing. And so he says, we were there for all that. We heard God speak. We saw Jesus Christ in his glorified form. And frankly speaking, they saw Moses and Elijah. I mean, top it all off, they saw two guys that were there and walked with God back in Exodus and back in 1 Kings. That'd be amazing, all right? So they saw all those things with their eyes. Now look what he says in verse 19. So we heard all that, saw that, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, colon, which means this part's connected. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What he says here in these verses... Is that we saw Jesus glorified. We heard God's voice. We saw Moses and Elijah. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. So the words of God, the words of prophecy that the Holy Ghost spake and that they heard and that they wrote down, the Bible, is more sure than hearing God's actual voice and seeing Jesus Christ with your own two eyes and seeing Moses and Elijah. That's pretty intense that this book is more important. So if tomorrow morning you hear God's audible voice, how do you know it's from God? If it lines up with the Bible, right? If an angel shows up at your doorstep before you go to school, says, hey, uh, whatever. (laughs) How do you know what that angel says is actually true? If it lines up with the Bible. Yeah? Uh,
1: Another uh, old Ukrainian... uh Guys spoke of this that, uh, like, uh, he's seen angels come to him uh, back in his youth, and then uh, everything they said was almost like what the Bible said, but it was slightly curved. And then after that, he just stopped listening to them. I don't know. Yeah, there's some crazy Ukrainians. There is crazy
0: Ukrainians (laughs) are crazy, dude. (laughs) You guys know firsthand, (laughs) no, it's not.
1: He said, I warn you because this happened to me. He said he's seen an actual angel everything he said almost lined up and then he goes checks with one little thing because it's just exactly.
0: changed. Exactly. So, so since that's the case and this is what, this is the point I'm getting at. We're skipping Gifts of the Prophecy. You can read that later. Look at this important consideration. If it is not in the Bible, I do not need it. Okay? If the Bible is that important, if it's not in the Bible, I don't need it. If it is in the Bible, I already have it. Right? So if the Bible is everything we need, and if we don't know if it's from God or not, except it lines up with the scriptures, if it's not in the Bible, I don't need it. If it's already in the Bible, well, then I already have it. Right? Yeah? I mean, does that make sense? It makes logical sense. Okay. So what is the purpose What's the purpose of it? Like these experiences, these things that happen, what is the purpose behind it? Because if we firmly believe, we're already in Second Peter, look at chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust where is the knowledge of God the Bible the knowledge of God is found in the Bible in God's book and in God's book according to verse 3 he has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness right okay that's what it says so the issue is are we going to believe what God's word actually says and believe that the Bible is truly all that we need. Because if it's not in the Bible, I don't need it. If it's already in the Bible, well, then I already have it. And so then what's the purpose behind it? Okay? Because here's the big kicker for me. This is the big kicker for me. Go over to 2 Thessalonians. And we'll get into more of this, like I said, next week. I just want to show this to you uh, just to kind of complete the circle of our conversation so far. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay, verse 1. Paul says here, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Okay, first of all, the context of chapter 2 is big. Verse 2 right there, it says that the people of Thessalonica were being troubled in their heart and in their spirit because they were receiving a spirit or a word or a letter that was from Paul, but it wasn't from Paul, okay? So it's very important you get that because they were getting this information, whether it be a spirit uh, that was happening or a word from a person, word of knowledge, word of prophecy, whatever, and then there were letters being sent to them in the hand of Paul, in the writing of Paul, in the signature of Paul, that it wasn't from him. And so he says, don't be shaken in mind. Don't be troubled. Don't do that because it's not from us. And then in verse three, he says, let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there coming a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. That is the Antichrist. That is another title for the Antichrist that you'll find in the scriptures, the son of perdition. Now, who is the son of perdition? He's going to go in more detail. Verse four. This is what he's going to do. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So he's going to try to replace God and be in the stead of God himself. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Then shall that wicked, there's the Antichrist, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy the brightness of his coming. Verse 9, here's the key. Even him, Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he is going to have the ability to have signs and lying wonders that look almost like the exact same thing that you saw in the scriptures. Now, this shouldn't be anything new because what happened in the book of Exodus? You had Moses with Aaron before Pharaoh and you had Janus and Jambres who were the magicians of Egypt that counterfeited and did the exact same things that Moses did until there was a point where they couldn't go anymore because they couldn't counterfeit it anymore. So when the Antichrist comes, he's going to have the ability to heal people He's going to have the ability to do some crazy things. He's going to have the ability to do some amazing signs and wonders. And when people look at him, they're going to say, that's God. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus who we've been waiting for. That's the goal of the anti-Christ. That's why his title is Antichrist because he's going to look just like Jesus Christ. So the works that Jesus did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are going to be the same works that the Antichrist is going to do during the tribulation. He's the great counterfeiter. This is what he's going to do. He's going to try to deceive the whole nation of Israel to follow him. Because if he can do that, then there's going to be no nation of Israel for Jesus Christ to come back for. That's the whole idea. And if the Antichrist can get the nation of Israel to follow him rather than their actual Messiah, and there's no one for Jesus to come back for to save and to establish his physical kingdom, then God is a liar and he's one and Satan and Lucifer, old-time Lucifer, Satan, has now become God himself. And he's fulfilled in Isaiah 14 everything that he wanted to do from the very beginning. That's his plan. So when the Antichrist shows up, he's going to be so good, and he's going to be so smooth that the whole world is going to follow his lead, and he's going to be able to back it up with Scripture. He's going to be able to back it up with lying signs and wonders. And no one's going to be able to say, mm, no, no, I can't. It's too good. I mean, he's it. He's everything we've been looking for. He's everything that the Bible talks about. He's going to look that good. So, why in the world are we going to put our faith and trust in signs and lying wonders? If we know that the Antichrist is going to use them, then what we need is the actual words of God and study them and know them because here is where we actually can see for real. I mean, that's the problem with Laodiceans. They need ISAP so they can see. The Word of God itself can reveal all this stuff. You have something? Okay. All right, so that's the whole point. All of our experiences that we get should be filtered through the Word of God. And you guys know this. Oh, my goodness. I mean, how many times in your heart there's something that you wanted so bad and you knew it was the right thing and all of a sudden it ended up being a complete, total disaster? I mean, can you trust in your own experiences, right? No, we can't because our hearts are deceitful and we need God to judge our hearts. And the same is true when it comes to theology. It's the exact same thing. We can't let our theology be led by our emotions. We can't.
2: Really quick, for those that are like super, super interested in in this stuff, um, our church has like the whole lesson of how many pages, how many weeks.
0: It's like a 12-week series. It's
2: a 12-week series of this stuff in detail, and it's at the desk. If you guys ever want to know more about it, um, like right now I feel like he skipped so much
0: yeah, we're going to get into more next week, but it's still, we'll be skipping a lot. If
2: you want more information, that's where you need to go, because it'll blow your mind.
0: Yeah. 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 Rick?
3: I was wanted to say, talking about the audible voice of God. I, a lot of times, if I have something that happened, I always qualify it. Not being charismatic, but what I had happened, because it's, and it's backed up with this.
0: Yeah. Last year, something
3: I have nothing. And. I'm freaking out because I have just a few days to get something together, and I'm all over the place in the Bible. I can't find, I just can't land on something to preach. So I reverted back to what Tom talks, pray for wisdom.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. So I had nothing. So I prayed for wisdom. I went to bed. Fell asleep. Had some crazy dreams. I don't remember what they were. All I know is that as I started waking up, Word strength made perfect in weakness strength made perfect And when I woke up, it was there. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I gotta find that verse because I didn't know if by memory. So I go look it up. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So yep. I start reading the chapter, and I remember the theme about the Corinthian church as redemption. And after I think it went through 1 Corinthians, I'm reading, and I'm reading that chapter. I'm like, man, this whole thing preaches. And I'm like, bam, there's my message. And I was just, I went from there, and I made my outline, and that's what I ended up doing for Sons of Dunker. Yeah. Night, but it was here. Yeah. I may have heard something but it was here.
0: Right. Right. Yep, for sure. For sure. It's always going to be backed up by the scripture, for sure. All right. So next week we're going to get into if you don't have a page 3 or whatever, page 16. Um we're going to get into specifically, you know, things the passages they use, what they believe, what the Bible says, particularly with tongues and healing. And there's a lot that we're going to go through. So uh, make sure to come back because we're going to be capping this off with that and then moving on to something else. All right, we good? All right. Okay. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for our time together tonight. Uh, we do pray that we would um, let these things uh, settle within our hearts, um, that we would truly do the work of uh, similar to what the Bereans did where they searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. That's so important. That we would be willing to do that to put the time and the work into making sure that what we actually believe is true Um, because there's a lot of false doctrine that's out there there's a lot of experiences that we can hang our our, um, futures on Uh, but frankly god we need to just rely upon you and trust you and just take what you've already told us because your book is amazing it does contain everything we need for life and godliness Um, and I'm very thankful that you have uh, went through the work and, frankly, the painstaking work and and the lives that were spent in preserving your words for us to have that we can hold on to. So I pray that we would cherish them with everything that we've got, that it would be one of the most prized positions that we have on this earth and that we would hold it very close to our heart. We love you. We thank you once again. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.